Section 72 of Greece and Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. The World's Story, Volume 4, Greece and Rome. Edited by Ava March Tappan. Section 72. The Destruction of Pompeii, 79 A.D. By Sir Edward bulwer Lytton. The sudden catastrophe, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which had, as it were, riven the very bonds of society, and left prisoner and jailer alike free, had soon rid Calenus of the guards to whose care the praetor had consigned him. And when the darkness and the crowd separated the priest from his attendants, he hastened with trembling steps towards the temple of his goddess. As he crept along, and ere the darkness was complete, he found himself suddenly caught by the robe, and a voice muttered in his ear, Hist, Calenus, an awful hour. Ay, by my father's head, who art thou? Thy face is dim and thy voice is strange. Not know thy Burbo? Fie! Gods, how the darkness gathers! Ho, ho! By yon terrific mountain, what sudden blazes of lightning! How they dart and quiver! Hades is loosed on earth. Tush, thou believest not these things, Calenus. Now is the time to make our fortune. Ha! Listen! Thy temple is full of gold and precious mummeries. Let us load ourselves with them, and then hasten to the sea and embark. None will ever ask an account of the doings of this day. Burbo, thou art right. Hush, and follow me into the temple. Who cares now, who sees now, whether thou art a priest or not? Follow, and we will share. In the precincts of the temple were many priests gathered around the altars, praying, weeping, groveling in the dust. Impostors in safety— they were not the less superstitious in danger. Calenus passed them, and entered the chamber yet to be seen in the south side of the court. Burbo followed him. The priest struck a light. Wine and viands strewed the table, the remains of a sacrificial feast. A man who has hungered forty-eight hours, muttered Calenus, has an appetite even in such a time. He seized on the food and devoured it greedily. Nothing could, perhaps, be more unnaturally horrid than the selfish baseness of these villains, for there is nothing more loathsome than the valour of avarice. Plunder and sacrilege while the pillars of the world tottered to and fro. What an increase to the terrors of nature can be made by the vices of man. "'Wilt thou never have done?' said Burbo, impatiently. "'Thy face purples and thine eyes start already. "'It is not every day one has such a right to be hungry. "'Oh, Jupiter, what sound is that?' the hissing of fiery water. What, does the cloud give rain as well as flame? Ha! What? Shrieks! And Burbo, how silent all is now! Look forth. Amidst the other horrors, the mighty mountain now cast up columns of boiling water. Blent and kneaded with the half-burning ashes, the streams fell like seething mud over the streets in frequent intervals. And full, where the priests of Isis had now cowered around the altars, on which they had vainly sought to kindle fires and pour incense, one of the fiercest of those deadly torrents, mingled with immense fragments of scoria, had poured its rage. Over the bended forms of the priests it dashed. That cry had been of death. That silence had been of eternity. The ashes, the pitchy stream, sprinkled the altars, covered the pavement, and half-concealed the quivering corpses of the priests. "'They are dead,' said Burbo, terrified for the first time, and hurrying back into the cell. I thought not the danger was so near and fatal. The two wretches stood staring at each other. 
you might have heard their hearts beat. Calenus, the less bold by nature, but the most griping, recovered first. We must do our task in a way, he said in a low whisper, frightened at his own voice. He stepped to the threshold, paused, crossed over the heated floor and his dead brethren to the sacred chapel, and called to Burbo to follow. But the gladiator quaked and drew back. So much the better, thought Calenus. The more will be my booty. Hastily he loaded himself with the more portable treasures of the temple, and thinking no more of his comrade, hurried from the sacred place. A sudden flash of lightning from the mount showed to Burbo, who stood motionless at the threshold, the flying and laden form of the priest. He took heart. He stepped forth to join him, when a tremendous shower of ashes fell right before his feet. The gladiator shrank back once more. Darkness closed him in. But the shower continued fast. Fast. Its heaps rose high and suffocatingly. Deathly vapors steamed from them. The wretch gasped for breath. He sought in despair again to fly. The ashes had blocked up the threshold. He shrieked as his feet shrank from the boiling fluid. How could he escape? He could not climb to the open space. Nay, were he able, he could not brave its horrors. It were best to remain in the cell, protected at least from the fatal air. He sat down and clenched his teeth. By degrees, the atmosphere from without, stifling and venomous, crept into the chamber. He could endure it no longer. His eyes, glaring round, rested on a sacrificial axe, which some priest had left in the chamber. He seized it. With the desperate strength of his gigantic arm, he attempted to hew his way through the walls. Meanwhile, the streets were already thinned. The crowd had hastened to disperse itself under shelter. The ashes began to fill up the lower parts of the town, but here and there you heard the steps of fugitives cranching them warily, or saw their pale and haggard faces by the blue glare of the lightning, or the more unsteady glare of torches, by which they endeavored to steer their steps. But ever and anon, the boiling water, or the straggling ashes, mysterious and gusty winds, rising and dying in a breath, extinguished these wandering lights, and with them the last living hope of those who bore them. In the street that leads to the gate of Herculaneum, Claudius now bent his perplexed and doubtful way. If I can gain the open country, thought he, doubtless there will be various vehicles beyond the gate, and Herculaneum is not far distant. Thank Mercury I have little to lose, and that little is about me. Hello, help there, help, cried a querulous and frightened voice. I have fallen down. My torch has gone out. My slaves have deserted me. I am Diomed, the rich Diomed. Ten thousand sesterces to him who helps me. At the same moment, Claudius felt himself caught by the feet. Ill fortune to thee. Let me go, fool, said the gambler. Oh, help me up. Give me thy hand. There, rise. Is this Claudius? I know the voice. Whither fliest thou? Towards Herculaneum. Blessed be the gods. Our way is the same, then, as far as the gate. Why not take refuge in my villa? Thou knowest the long range of subterranean cellars beneath the basement. That shelter, what shower can penetrate? You speak well, said Claudius, musingly. And by storing the cellar with food, we can remain there even some days, should these wondrous storms endure so long. Oh, blessed be he who invented gates to a city, cried Diomed. See, they have placed a light within yon arch. By that let us guide our steps. The air was now still for a few minutes. The lamp from the gate streamed out far and near. The fugitives hurried on. They gained the gate. They passed by the Roman sentry. The lightning flashed over his livid face and polished helmet, 
but his stern features were composed even in their awe. He remained erect and motionless at his post. That hour itself had not animated the machine of the ruthless majesty of Rome into the reasoning and self-acting man. There he stood, amidst the crashing elements. He had not received the permission to desert his station and escape. The cloud which had scattered so deep a murkiness over the day had now settled into a solid and impenetrable mass. It resembled less even the thickest gloom of a night in the open air than the close and blind darkness of some narrow room. But in proportion as the blackness gathered, did the lightnings around Vesuvius increase in their vivid and scorching glare. Nor was their horrible beauty confined to the usual hues of fire. No rainbow ever rivaled their varying and prodigal dyes, now brightly blue as the most azure depth of a southern sky, now of a livid and snake-like green, darting restlessly to and fro as the folds of an enormous serpent, now of a lurid and intolerable crimson, gushing forth through the columns of smoke far and wide, and lighting up the whole city from arch to arch, then suddenly dying into a sickly paleness, like the ghost of their own life. In the pauses of the showers you heard the rumbling of the earth beneath, and the groaning waves of the tortured sea, or lower still, and audible but to the watch of intensest fear, the grinding and hissing murmur of the escaping gases through the chasms of the distant mountain. Sometimes the cloud appeared to break from its solid mass, and by the lightning to assume quaint and vast mimicries of human or of monster shapes, striding across the gloom, hurtling one upon the other, and vanishing swiftly into the turbulent abyss of shade, so that, to the eyes and fancies of the affrighted wanderers, the unsubstantial vapors were as the bodily forms of gigantic foes, the agents of terror and of death. The ashes in many places were already knee-deep, and the boiling showers which came from the steaming breath of the volcano forced their way into the houses, bearing with them a strong and suffocating vapor. In some places, immense fragments of rock, hurled upon the house roofs, bore down along the streets masses of confused ruin, which yet more and more with every hour obstructed the way. And as the day advanced, the motion of the earth was more sensibly felt. The footing seemed to slide and creep, nor could chariot or litter be kept steady even on the most level ground. Sometimes the huger stones, striking against each other as they fell, broke into countless fragments, emitting sparks of fire, which caught whatever was combustible within their reach. And along the plains beyond the city the darkness was now terribly relieved, for several houses and even vineyards had been set on flames, and at various intervals the fires rose sullenly and fiercely against the solid gloom. To add to this partial relief of the darkness, the citizens had here and there, in the more public places, such as the porticoes of temples and the entrances to the forum, endeavoured to place rows of torches, but these rarely continued long. The showers and the winds extinguished them, and the sudden darkness into which their fitful light was converted had something in it doubly terrible and doubly impressive on the impotence of human hopes, the lesson of despair. Frequently, by the momentary light of these torches, Parties of fugitives encountered each other, some hurrying towards the sea, others flying from the sea back to the land, for the ocean had retreated rapidly from the shore. An utter darkness lay over it, and upon its groaning and tossing waves the storm of cinders and rocks fell without the protection which the streets and roofs afforded to the land. Wild, haggard, ghastly with supernatural fears, these groups encountered each other, but without the leisure to speak.' 
to consult, to advise, for the showers fell now frequently, though not continuously, extinguishing the lights, which showed to each band the death-like faces of the other, and hurrying all to seek refuge beneath the nearest shelter. The whole elements of civilization were broken up. Ever and anon by the flickering lights, you saw the thief hastening by the most solemn authorities of the law, laden with, and fearfully chuckling over, the produce of his sudden gains. If, in the darkness, wife was separated from husband, or parent from child, vain was the hope of reunion. Each hurried blindly and confusedly on. Nothing in all the various and complicated machinery of social life was left, save the primal law of self-preservation. Through this awful scene did the Athenian wade his way, accompanied by Ione and the blind girl. Suddenly a rush of hundreds in their path to the sea swept by them. Nydia was torn from the side of Glaucus, who, with Ione, was borne rapidly onward, and when the crowd, whose forms they saw not, so thick was the gloom, were gone, Nydia was still separated from their side. Glaucus shouted her name. No answer came. They retraced their steps. In vain. They could not discover her. It was evident she had been swept along in some opposite direction by the human current. Their friend, their preserver, was lost. And hitherto, Nydia had been their guide. Her blindness rendered the scene familiar to her alone. Accustomed, through a perpetual night, to thread the windings of the city, she had led them unerringly towards the seashore, by which they had resolved to hazard an escape. Now which way could they wend? All was rayless to them a maze without a clue. Wearied, despondent, bewildered, they, however, passed along, the ashes falling upon their heads, the fragmentary stones dashing up in sparkles before their feet. Alas, alas, murmured Ione, I can go no farther. My steps sink among the scorching cinders. Fly, dearest, beloved, fly, and leave me to my fate. Hush, my betrothed, my bride, death with thee is sweeter than life without thee. Yet whither, oh, whither can we direct ourselves through the gloom? Already it seems that we have made but a circle, and are in the very spot which we quitted an hour ago. Oh, gods, yon rock! See, it hath riven the roof before us. It is death to move through the streets. Blessed lightning! See, Ione, see! The portico of the Temple of Fortune is before us. Let us creep beneath it. It will protect us from the showers. He caught his beloved in his arms, and with difficulty and labor gained the temple. He bore her to the remoter and more sheltered part of the portico, and leaned over her that he might shield her with his own form from the lightning and the showers. The beauty and the unselfishness of love could hallow even that dismal time. "'Who is there?' said the trembling and hollow voice of one who had preceded them in their place of refuge. "'Yet what matters? The crush of the ruined world forbids to us friends or foes.' Ione turned again at the sound of the voice, and with a faint shriek cowered again beneath the arms of Glaucus, and he, looking in the direction of the voice, beheld the cause of her alarm. Through the darkness glared forth two burning eyes. The lightning flashed and lingered athwart the temple, and Glaucus, with a shudder, perceived the lion to which he had been doomed, couched beneath the pillars, and close beside it, unwitting of the vicinity, lay the giant form of him who had accosted them, the wounded gladiator, Niger. That lightning had revealed to each other the form of beast and man, yet the instinct of both was quelled. Nay, the lion crept nearer and nearer to the gladiator, as for companionship. 
and the gladiator did not recede or tremble. The revolution of nature had dissolved her lighter terrors, as well as her wanted ties. While they were thus terribly protected, a group of men and women, bearing torches, passed by the temple. They were of the congregation of the Nazarenes, and a sublime and unearthly emotion had not, indeed, quelled their awe, but it had robbed awe of fear. They had long believed, according to the error of the early Christians, that the last day was at hand. They imagined now that the day had come. "'Woe! Woe!' cried in a shrill and piercing voice the elder at their head. "'Behold, the Lord descendeth to judgment. He maketh fire come down from heaven in the sight of men.'" End of section 72